electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, a big rally for tech after a tough week as the jobs number comes in a bit hot, what it means for the mega caps coming up this hour, plus more on the view from the C-suite. Twilio's Jeff Lawson joins us in a moment as shares of that name slump on a weak forecast. And that's not all. We'll also talk to the CEOs of Microchip Technology and Expedia, whose results are telling a different story this morning, John. Yeah, tech stocks in the green, Carl, after a better than expected jobs number this morning as the strong labor data continues. Given no signs of a slowdown from the Fed, are there legs for a rally here? Well, cracks in the armor have started to show as sweeping layoffs hit a lot of names this week. Lyft, Open Door, Stripe, even bigger macro companies like uh, Credit Suisse, Mixed picture when it comes to results. PayPal falling after warning of a bleak holiday quarter ahead, while Block and Coinbase are heading higher as both names, well, diversifying their revenue streams would be a kind way of putting it. But, you know, as uh, transaction volumes fall, they're, they're finding yeah, other ways to make money. But I just really have to focus, D, on Twilio and Atlassian. I've been mentioning Atlassian for a while because it's a different slice of the enterprise software story. And one of the storylines that I think plays out to large effect in 2023 is platforms versus best of breed. Mm -hmm. Both of these names in enterprise software, Twilio and Atlassian, represent that kind of arguably best of breed story. They're not a Microsoft, they're not an Amazon, not an Oracle, et cetera. These huge, now legacy uh, software names, they're the smaller ones that say, hey, we we have a Mm -hmm. little focus and we do that better and we're gonna grow. Twilio's down 35% at the moment. Atlassian down 29%. This, this is a big concern. Yeah. It's brutal. And, you know, they've run out of time, right? The time to become a platform was when markets were different, when cash was flowing more freely. Could have done some more on the M&A side. I mean, Zoom Video tried to, couldn't get it through. But that's another one that you could argue is the best of breed. Did it successfully turn into a platform? Be interesting to watch how these names do if they start to become takeover targets on the fin side, in the, on the fintech side. Um, you're seeing something similar as well. You know, they were all trying to do something very specific in financial services, branching out. The question now is, do they deserve their premium to, say, traditional banks? What do those valuations look like? Uh, Kate Rooney, we were talking to her yesterday about what they're making money on now. Cash holdings, yield on cash. Even before that, it was interchange. That's not disruptive, Carl. (laughs) That sounds like a bank. Um, So they have this moment now. They're trying to get everything in order. We've been talking about the layoffs we're seeing at a number of these companies. Um, Do they have time now? A lot of the layoffs are happening in some of those departments that were trying to do disruptive things as they now focus on their core. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is brutal, as you say, Dee, but it's not surprising. I mean, this is exactly how the cycle goes. Headwinds get stronger, large players get leverage, smaller players lose it, uh, and in some cases get taken out. And that's exactly what we're seeing. It's almost, it's almost by the book. Yeah, 
and those that are able to go on the offense will typically do better. But did they build up those cash reserves during the boom times to be able to do so? Let's dig deeper into this. The fintech specifically bring in Wolf Research's Darren Peller, who covers this space. Uh, Darren, weigh in on this conversation. Can fintech still be disruptive in this environment? Can they justify their premium valuations when investors are demanding discipline? Yeah, and thanks for having us. Look, when we think about the actual innovations that are going on and the ability for these companies to, to grow at a rate that's notably faster than especially banks, uh, we do think it's actually sustainable and differentiated. We recognize that right now, you know, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty in consumer spending, which has a direct impact on most fintech names, uh, especially the payments names. But, you know, you can't, you can't forget about the fact that we now have 400 million users of PayPal globally, which is mo bigger than most banks, have accounts. Uh, and you think about it as a two-sided network, there's loyalty there. Same with Block and Cash App and what they've built out. Um, so listen, I, I tend to agree with what you guys were saying earlier around some of the smaller ones needing cash may burn cash, but some of the larger fintechs, in my view, are gonna, you know, really should maintain a very good premium to banks and other names in the, in the market, given their consistent and sustainable growth. Right, those user growth, those user numbers, 400 million at PayPal is really, you know, what investors have been excited about. But um, has there been a failure to monetize? Look at what PayPal has and has not been able to do with Venmo. Yeah, no, look, it's a fair point. I mean, at the end of the day, the checkout experience is something they really do need to improve on. And that's something that, you know, we, we have a peer perform, a new, like a neutral rating on the stock. And that's really coming from two things. One is we do have a little bit of concern over the recession sensitivity. Uh, to the name in a downturn, it's very much discretionary spending. So keep that in mind for PayPal. Uh, but on the same on the same token, you know we're still trying to figure out if they're holding their market share uh, on the core PayPal or on Venmo relative to what we saw during the pandemic of very strong growth. Um, now, with all that said, they are improving their checkout experience. They have partnerships with Apple now. They have partnerships allowing for checkout to not enter a password, which I know we all hate to do. Uh, it's much more seamless. So they're, they're going in the right direction, but they have to prove themselves. Darren, let's talk about Bill.com, which doesn't always get talked about as a fintech, but should. Uh, yeah. Beat and a raise, but acquiring Finmark, you wouldn't know that necessarily from how the stock is doing this morning, down almost 7.5%. But yeah. projecting stability there, growth 94% year over year, what do you see happening here? Yeah, I mean, talk about growth you know, perhaps being underappreciated. I think the real concern that's happening is when, despite the beat, despite the raise, management on the call talked very similarly to what we're hearing with a lot of companies about macro trends changing and potential for a slowdown in business spending. Uh, and not to mention, they also alluded to maybe the take rate might expand more slowly, just given the same dynamics on macro. This is a company that's trading at a relatively high multiple. It's a software-centric name. And I think there are still very high sensitivities to anybody in the market that has a high multiple not being crystal clear, perfect in every way. As much as our view is, and we like this stock quite a bit, as much as our view is they're going to have sustainable upside and a lot of levers to make numbers work, uh, in the backdrop of this macro heightened market, sensitive market, it's, uh, it's really what's pushing it down. Darren, I, what do you think the conversation sounds like at, at Legacy Financials who... Uh, a year and a half ago, might have been feeling nervous about the competitive threat from uh, disruptive fintech. I mean, is it is it we're going to wait till valuations get cheap enough to buy some of these players, or maybe now it's a, a more clear shot to build something in, in, organically? How, how does it sound? 
That's a great question. I mean, number one, don't forget that banks and any consumer finance company, they have their own challenges from a macro standpoint to worry about as well, specifically credit quality and whether that's going to change given we're still very low unemployment, mm -hmm. uh, even with rising rates. Now, with all that being said, uh, I think they've spent, and if you ask any bank CEO, are you going to keep spending on tech? They're absolutely going to put that on the top of their list of what they're going to keep doing to, to innovate. For what it's worth, about 25 to 30% of total banking app downloads right now are on neobanks, okay? And by the way, mm -hmm. if you included Square and or Block and, uh, and PayPal and Venmo, that would be almost 50%. <laughs> so think about what I just told you. Of all the largest banks, consumers are still downloading these fintechs to yeah. use on their on their mobile. Um, so they have no choice but to either invest more in, in this fintech area or or potentially what you said, I think wait for some lower valuations in buy. Yeah, that's certainly um, what we heard from SoFi CEO Anthony Noto earlier this week. He said he was pulling customers over from the big banks specifically. Darren, thanks for being with us this morning. Wolf's Darren Fowler. Thanks for having us. Let's turn to Twilio this morning, posting a beat on the top and the bottom line in Q3, but that weaker-than-expected revenue guide did send shares into free fall, triggered a slew of downgrades this morning. Let's get a closer look at the quarter in a CNBC exclusive with Twilio's co-founder and CEO, Jeff Lawson. Jeff, uh, really appreciate you coming on. Obviously a tough day. Can you talk about the origins of this guidance, where it's rooted, and whether you yourself were surprised? Well, thank you for having me on today. You know, we're coming off a really strong Q3 of nearly a billion dollars of quarterly revenue, growing 32% year over year. And so we thought it was a really strong quarter, especially signing some big new uh, customers, some big new deals. We talked about, you know, an eight-figure software deal that we signed with a major Fortune 100 insurance company for Flex, our contact center product. Uh, launching our newest software offering, Twilio Engage, with Discovery Education, being an amazing customer and early adopter of that product. So coming off some great news from Q3, we did give a uh, you know bit of a difficult guide. And you know when we look at it, Twilio has a usage-based revenue model. So when customers, when end users are using more of our customers' applications, well, we'll tend to make more revenue. And if they're using them less, then we will make less revenue. And that's not a dynamic of like, did we sign new customers or did we lose customers or any of that? It's just a matter of what's the economic activity going on out there with all those B2C companies that are out there in this digital revolution serving customers through all the, the apps and all the, uh, all the applications that we use every day. And what we've seen is moderation in a few categories. Um, crypto is one where we've just seen less usage of those apps. And it kind of makes sense, right? Um, we've also seen uh, a bit of a weakness in retail and e-commerce uh, or some other categories. But we've also seen strength, back to what you were just talking about, in financial services, uh, where, you know, when the market's very dynamic, people are using those services more because they're trying to navigate these difficult times. But on net, uh, that did result in us giving a, um, you know, a bit of a cautious guide to Q4 because we are seeing uh, some changes in end user behavior. Right. You think you think 35 percent is too harsh uh, a, a judgment from from the stock? You know, I, I, I don't comment on our stock price. Obviously, the market does what the market does. But, you know, what I can say is, you know, we've got a great business. We talked to investors yesterday about focusing on really uh, just a few key areas where our company is laser focused. You know, first of all is profitability. We again recommitted that we will be non-gap profitable in 2023. And then we added in our analyst day yesterday 
that we are going to seek 100 to 300 bips of bottom line improvement annually thereafter for the medium term. And so we laid out a plan for how we are going to not just become profitable, and we already took uh, a fairly significant cost action um, to, uh, to decrease our costs to enable us to achieve that profitability faster. And um, But we also laid out the plan to really focus our go-to-market resources on growing our software businesses, so our, our contact center business, our marketing automation business, uh, our CDP business, and uh, because those are higher gross margin products. And so we're really getting much more focused as a company to achieve profitability, to grow the software side of our business, and we've got a very clear plan on how we're going to do that. Uh, Jeff, good morning. It's John Fort. Um, yes, the stock reaction uh, is harsh, and I wonder how much more is to come in the sense of how much does Q4 matter? Right now, there's a big inventory overhang, talks of a lot of discounting during the season, and you know we've heard from uh, the likes of Qualcomm about a buildup in, in chips you know, materials in the supply chain that, that might not get cycled through. If your uh, model is consumption-based, if that overhang continues after Q4, that could be rough on the overall economy. So uh, w what kinds of cost reductions are you prepared to make uh, to make those targets? And it's painful, certainly, when we're talking about employees. Well, look, I mean, I, you know, there's only so uh, far I think those consumption behavior changes go. By the way, consumption is a big part of our business, but it's not our entire business. Um, and oftentimes, as we've seen, like going into COVID, uh, at the beginning of COVID, we saw certain categories just really fall off, like travel. But at the same time, the slack was picked up by other categories like e-commerce, right? And so we've got a very um, uh, uh, healthy customer base of 280,000 customers uh, representing every sector you can imagine, you know, everything from the startups to the Fortune 100 incumbents in every industry, every vertical you can imagine. And so that customer base, that is a very distributed customer base across the economy, I don't think you see things that happen that are just truly like universally ap applicable across every vertical. And that we see that playing out right now, right? As I said, you know, financial services is showing a lot of strength. And so while our product is really applicable, it is a little bit of a bellwether of maybe the economic activity that's going on there with consumers. But look, we still guided to a great, you know, uh, you know, still guided to a growing number, not as fast as we would like, uh, but we guided to um, nearly 20 percent uh, growth year over year. So that is still good growth for a company at our size of four billion of annualized revenue. Um, it's just not quite as much as we'd like to see it. And so, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'd say it's a it's a a minor uh, change to the growth factor for the quarter. And again, this is a business cycle. And when we're on the other side of that business cycle, our usage model plays really well. And I think we will actually recover that growth faster than many other companies out there. So uh, we're, on, we're on the other side of that cycle. So, do you lean into R and D to build different products or expand products for this new reality, or do you lean? into uh, marketing and sales to be able to uh, grow into a recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, we are focused on R&D to build more efficiency into our model. This is one of the things we talked about with our investors yesterday, of building more automation, more product-led growth, and more self-service to make our go-to-market more efficient, especially for our messaging and our communications products. And we see a lot of opportunity to bring optimizations into that process that allow us to be much more efficient as we grow our messaging and communications businesses. The second thing is that you know we just got off of our customer conference uh, the last two days. And 
we are very much hitting the message on the head with our customers that when you bring in Twilio, and especially Segment, our leading customer data platform, what it allows you to do is to bring down your customer acquisition costs and increase the lifetime value of your customer relationships. And when we talk to customers, you know, we had talked about an amazing customer story, Domino's Pizza in Mexico. They uh, rolled out Segment to understand their customers better and then to be smarter about how they buy ads online. And they saw a 700% increase in the return on ad spend, 700%. So when you think about that, that's the message that customers need in this time to understand how technology can help them become more efficient, become more profitable. And I think those are the stories mm -hmm. that are really driving the adoption of many new technologies like Twilio's. So I guess the question, Jeff, is do they need to go to a Twilio for that? There's sort of been this idea that's grown um, that certain technologies that thrived in recent years have become commoditized, plug and play, who can sell it for the lowest price. So what technology does Twilio have that no one else has? Well, for example, that our CDP, Twilio segment, leading in the market, recognized leader in the market. And the reason is because of a technology edge that we have. And that edge, even though there are other players in the CDP market that have recently entered, they don't have the products. They've got good marketing. They don't have the products that are proven at scale. You know, one of our reference uh, customers for Segment is Fox Sports, where uh, Segment is a part of how they've orchestrated the Super Bowl in the past. And during the Super Bowl, we're ingesting a million events per second and then turning those into actionable insights about every one of those viewers. Nobody else can do that. And so, sure, you know, technologies can look the same in their marketing, but actually when customers dig in and they realize that actually one product achieves their goal and the others do not, well, at the end of the day, technology okay. is technology, right? You know, yeah. it does the job or it doesn't. And we have a proven track record with mm -hmm. leadership in multiple categories that says we know how to do the job. Um, finally, Jeff, you, you just said a few moments ago that you guys are a bellwether of economic activity, what's going on with consumers. But, you know, especially on the services side, um, consumers remain very strong. Demand remains very strong. I know that you have worked with Uber. I don't know if you still do. But, you know, Darakaz Rashai in the latest quarter said that there's absolutely no slowdown. We've heard the same from travel companies. We've, I mean, we've seen, you know, uh, uh, ride sharing, travel. Those weren't industries we've called out. Now, I don't know that I've seen uh, huge, uh, we, we haven't seen huge slowdowns. We also haven't seen huge accelerations, right? So those do feel maybe like a little more like business as usual. Jeff, again, uh, our thanks uh, for speaking to viewers uh, on a day where obviously it would have been easier not to come on at all. Uh, good to see you again. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here. Uh, still to come this morning, uh, there's Elon Musk walking into this year's Barron Investment Conference. He's on stage now with Barron. We'll get some headlines and more on his comments about the Twitter deal, the costs, and a lot more. Stay with us. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts 
Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We mentioned this earlier. Twilio, not the only cloud name falling hard this morning. Atlassian is down 30% after missing on earnings per share, reporting lower than expected revenue guidance for the fiscal second quarter. Atlassian co-founder and CEO Scott Farquhar blamed the macro environment for the customer slowdown, told analysts they plan to slow their own headcount growth moving forward. It's now the biggest laggard on the NASDAQ 100 this week, Carl. And Jeff Lawson of Twilio was just talking to us about product-led growth. And the upshot of that is having a structure where you use automation, loyalty, word of mouth to drive sales uh, more than having to spend on your own sales and marketing. Atlassian is the poster child for product-led growth. It, though, had a bad quarter. And so I think investors are going to have to ask the question, during this time of economic disruption, does product-led growth continue yeah. to work in the same way it did when maybe you're keeping the same customers, but their own consumption isn't as big as it used to be? You're not necessarily expanding as much with them. Do you still grow without having sales and marketing to, to push that to happen? Yep. Uh, it, it's all sort of uh, coming together. The things we've been talking about for several weeks, even months. I don't know if you saw challenger layoffs yesterday, D, but... Uh, the increase year-on-year year is substantial, but the biggest year-on-year year vertical in terms of layoffs is tech. It's, it's and it's tech. exactly what we've been talking about. Right, but does that lead, I mean, in the big macro picture, does that lead to a change in Fed policy down the road, right? I think it's the services sector still makes up the majority of the U.S. economy. Do we need to see layoffs there? Do the tech layoffs really matter for that macro picture? Certainly here in Silicon Valley it does, and that's what everyone's talking about. Meantime, guys, DoorDash racing up after reporting beats on the top and bottom lines for the third quarter. Strong guidance for the fourth quarter. CEO Tony Hsu joined Squawk Box earlier this morning touting the company's profitability. We've actually never been a platform that believed in discounting. I mean, if you looked at, you know, the percentage of discounts, it stayed relatively, you know, small. Most of DoorDash's growth has been organic. If you, if you looked at our PNL, the sales and marketing you know, um, leverage is really what has allowed us to, you know, continue to increase our free cash flow as well as, you know, um, achieve 10 straight quarters of positive EBITDA. That's relative, of course. We know that food delivery companies do have a lot of promotions, a lot of discounts. Despite Tony's optimism, though, it is still trailing its peers and quarterly adjusted EBITDA. And although they did recover some ground on free cash flow from the second quarter, that's down 73 percent from where they stood this time last year. I also, guys, like to look at stock-based compensation, $482 million at Dash. At Uber, $251 million. Lyft is going to be next week, but, of course, it's embarking on layoffs. I think the story here, though, John, is, you know, the key difference between Dash and Uber, which I always talk about, is Dash is investing in assets. It's building up its Dash Marts. It's going international like Uber is, too, but it ultimately wants to have this product that – it hopes it can get better margins on, but it's going to require a large capital outlay. Well, I think there are a lot of differences here. I mean, especially that Dash doesn't have a ride-hailing business. And so by rights, this quarter shouldn't have been this good, right? Because, because yeah. you look at people aren't supposed to still be ordering delivery. <laughs> Traditionally, DoorDash has had a better model, frankly, than Uber has. And if they're investing in it and spending to grow it and growing share... 
maybe that's okay. And I know, you know, we, we, investors want to focus on EBITDA now when before they were just focusing on top line and growth. I, I think probably the wise thing is to focus on both and to figure out whose mm -hmm. model is actually working. Right, and it's easier uh, to... Sorry, Carl, go ahead. No, I was going to say, in Dash's case, uh, they don't have to choose. That's a beat on EBITDA and a beat on revenue. Yeah, yeah there you have it. Um, and in the case of Dash as well, it does get that premium for those better unit economics. Part of the reason that Tony Hsu and his team hasn't had to put so much money into marketing and promotions, remember, John, they started in rural areas. They didn't go head-to-head -head with some of the other players in cities, and that had served them well over time. Yep. Suburbs were the place to be, and they argue they have a data advantage. We'll see if that continues to play out during this downturn, uh, Carl. But so far, hey, today a surprise to the upside. Yeah. Uh, meantime, no consumer slowdown when it comes to travel as well. Uh, it's been quite a week for those earnings prints. We got a lot more with the CEO of Expedia as bookings and revenue there surge, 7% gain. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check, everyone. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's what's happening right now. The U.S. economy is creating jobs at a strong pace despite high inflation. Employers added 261,000 new positions in October. That's well above forecasts. The unemployment rate rose to 3.7%, but remains near a five-decade low. Average hourly earnings are up 4.7% over the past year, and that is well below the inflation rate. DraftKings shares are on track for the worst one-day drop ever, now down 23%. The company posted strong quarterly results and raised revenue guidance, but it also forecasts losses next year well above Wall Street expectations. Investors are making a big shift into cash. Bank of America Global Research says cash funds saw $62 billion in inflows in the latest week. It's part of the largest move at the beginning of the quarter since the beginning of the pandemic. At the same time, investors pulled money from gold funds for the 19th straight week. All right, Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right, Contessa, thanks so much. Expedia moving up this morning despite a booking miss for the quarter after CEO Peter Kern told investors the company has not seen trade downs or shifts in demand. Our Seema Modi joins us with Kern in a first on CNBC interview. Morning, Seema. Carl, thanks. Stock up 7%. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Seema. How are you? Let's start with the consumer. Uh, on the call, I heard you say consumers are not trading down. That's a very different message than what we're hearing from Walmart and some of the retailers out there. So unpack what exactly you're seeing, and especially now with concerns that the economy is going to soften further. Yeah, I think travel has proven quite resilient. Uh, we all speculated that people had bought plenty of stuff and were going to use their money to travel as COVID opened up. And we've seen that be consistently true. And I think with the limitations on uh, air travel and some of the things that happened through the summer, we're seeing the demand just continue. 
and we haven't as yet seen any uh, you know trade downs, any real change in demand, even on ADRs and pricing. So I think there's not a lot of evidence in the market yet. <clears throat> excuse me that 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 consumers will trade down, but you know of course we'll have to see. But there's nothing yet that we've noticed. Does this signal to you a psychological shift post-pandemic, Americans prioritizing travel versus spending on discretionary goods? And how long can this last, Peter? Uh, BTIG analyst Jake Fuller saying we'll start to see uh, travel demand fall off in summer of next year. Is that what you're anticipating as well? I think summer will be strong next year. I mean, look, we can all speculate about some bumps in the road, but there's plenty of parts of the world that have still not even opened up to travel when you think about APAC and other places where people haven't been able to travel yet. So while some of us have been able to travel for a while and maybe have fulfilled that need, there's plenty of people out there who have not. So I think we'll continue to see, you know, it'll, it'll move around a little bit geographically uh, and, and we'll see what happens with the, the economies of the West over the next year, I guess. You have plenty of economists on that, you know, have, have opinions on that. But uh, it appears that travel will remain a number one demand uh, for consumers. And we think that will bolster us, you know, and the travel sector through a lot of this. Okay, then let's talk competition. Uh, there's been this debate on the street whether booking holdings is gaining market share in the U.S. as it continues to spend a significant amount on growing its footprint in this market. Uh, looking at room nights versus 2019 levels, Expedia down 19%, booking up 8%. Uh, how do you explain this shift? Yeah, well, it's a few things. I mean, one we've talked about before that we've been really focused on buying the right business, and that's been about growing our base of high lifetime value customers, which we've been doing. Our member base has exceeded 2019 levels for the first time. Uh, our app usage is way up over 2019. So we're trying to really build the right base of business and grow it. And you can see that in our uh, EBITDA margins and our margins generally. Mm. Booking has been chasing volume. Uh, that's you can see that in their margins too, frankly, and uh, and so you know we're going about it slightly different ways, but we believe that over time, as we build our make our product better with all the product innovation we talked about at earnings, uh, and we build up the right consumers and give them the right benefits, that that is the right model for the future of travel. That is not doesn't need to be the commoditized. Uh, you know, performance marketing dependent business that it's been. So that's what we're building towards. It's a journey, but, uh, you know, we feel like the business we've given up uh, is business uh, that we didn't need, that wasn't very profitable, and we are building a better model forward. Peter, good morning. It's Deirdre. Um, building up that base is costing you guys quite a bit on sales and marketing as well. You guys spent more in one quarter than Airbnb has on sales and marketing in three quarters. How are you judging the success? And can you take a page from Airbnb's book and the way that you market? Yeah, I th thanks, Deirdre. I think the real we all have different advantages. And I think, uh, you know, Airbnb clearly has a brand advantage in its particular space, which is, you know, home rental uh, or room rental. And, uh, you know, what we have is an advantage, we believe, in our loyalty program. Uh, we've talked before that next year we're, we're combining all our loyalty programs into one loyalty program. We think we have product advantages. But if you look at what we spent, we've actually gotten leverage versus 2019 in terms of our overall spend on buying and retaining our customers. Uh, and so we are doing better than we used to do. Airbnb has a unique brand advantage over all of us. But in the world of those of us who compete in performance marketing and compete in all product lines, because we've got air, hotel, you know, cruise, everything, uh, not to mention vacation rentals with Verbo, 
you know, we think we're getting leverage in that model. And again, as we build a bigger base of direct customers and members, that leverage gets better and better because those customers come back direct to us. And we're seeing that happen. Peter, we got the October jobs report out today. And once again, leisure and hospitality, very strong, 35,000 jobs added. But the pace of increases have slowed considerably. And I was speaking to a number of hotel owners that are no longer offering cleaning services uh, made every day. What are you hearing from your suppliers, some of your customers, about how this story changes going into 2023? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point, Seema. I mean, we saw it during COVID, right, that people, that hoteliers and a variety of uh, players in hospitality uh, couldn't get the resources they need and were changing the model, therefore, and saying, hey, we're not going to clean as often or we're not going to clean at all in some cases. Uh, and uh, what we've seen is that travelers were willing to accept that. And so what you're seeing now is uh, hospitality players saying, hey, we don't have to go back to that model and it's really hard to hire those people. So we're going to do less and uh, so far still charge more with rates being really up. So we've seen the consumers really accept it, but I think it's why it's so important. And we're spending a lot of time trying to make sure we match consumers with expectations and the right product. So you don't want a consumer going somewhere and being surprised that they're not getting a service. But if you match them the right way, if you give them the information, then they can make informed choices. And if that's what they choose for the value or whatever, then then everybody should be happy with that. Yeah, the customer is clearly becoming more discerning. Um, great times to talk about travel. It may not be reflective of the broader economy, but you cannot overlook what's happening in this space. Appreciate your time today. Peter Kern, CEO of Expedia. Good to see you, Thank you. And Seema, thank you for bringing that to us. Q4, meanwhile, playing out very differently for chip stocks depending on their consumer exposure. We're going to talk to the CEO behind one name, Bucking the Downtrend, industrial-focused microchip. As they report record sales next Stocks up more than 6%. Tech Check is just getting started. Turning now to another earnings mover this morning. Shares of microchip tech up more than 6% after delivering a beat across the board for the quarter. Guidance also coming in well above consensus. Let's get a closer look in a CNBC exclusive with microchip CEO Ganesh Murthy. Uh, Ganesh, welcome. So um, let's start with end market demand, which you don't normally talk a lot about, but you did in this quarter, I guess, kind of trying to show uh, the, the robustness of <laughs> demand in spaces like aerospace, defense, automotive, comms infrastructure, where a lot of your customers are. What does that look like and how much confidence do you have heading into 2023? Great. Thank you and good morning. Yes, uh, you know, we have about 86% of our market in these end markets, which are much more robust, much more resilient. Uh, and so whether it's aerospace and defense, industrial, automotive, comm infrastructure, data center, all of those continue to be strong and all of those remain strong as we look into the first several quarters of next year. The only area of weakness is in consumer and there our exposure is dominated by consumer appliances, which are slower, but, uh, you know, like all of us, when something breaks down at home, we still need to replace it. There's, there's still a pretty good replacement market, even in consumer appliances. Right. Uh, you mentioned also your own inventory build. You went from you, you went up to 139 days of inventory, up 12 days from the quarter before. And you say that's OK, but we've seen inventory whiplash happening, mainly driven by the consumer in other areas of chips. We saw it from Intel, then AMD, most recently Qualcomm. How can you be sure that your customers aren't doing some of the same things that you're doing, 
building up inventory, and then as the economy slow down, they're going to push away from the table and say, no more, please, for a while. You know, we have been under shipping demand for quite some time, even in September. We left behind more demand that we didn't ship than we did ship. So opportunity for inventory growth of customers is not that high. There could be some of that that's going on. Our inventory largely grew in materials and work in progress, not so much in finished goods. And our inventory is in products that have 10, 15, 20 year lifetime. So the obsolescence risk is very low in our inventory. I know on the call you talked about some of the variability in lead times. And I wonder if you've seen this much variability across uh, vertical silos in your experience in the industry. No, we're going through an unusual time. You know, there are parts of the market which are uh, getting more imbalanced. There's lots of the market that we're in that is still imbalanced. And so our lead times are all over the place, but we still have many products, certain cap capacity corridors where the lead times are very long, others on which we have started to make improvement as we can see better line of sight to capacity. Hey, Ganesh, it's Deirdre. Um, I wonder how you're thinking about your China business in light of rising geopolitical tension, the export restrictions. You still have an R&D team there, correct? We have almost no R&D there. It's very small. But China is a big market for us, as for most, most of the semiconductor companies. Um, most of the restrictions so far have not had a major impact on microchip, um, and including some of the more recent ones, which have been aimed at the very high end for artificial intelligence chips. Now, to the extent those systems don't get built and they have something from us and power management or otherwise, we wouldn't ship as well. But by and large, uh, you know, we've been able to cope through the many different restrictions over the last year plus uh, and navigate, including some of the restrictions from all the way from Huawei, where we redirected all that material and have other customers and other sockets to fill it. Ganesh, what are you doing on costs as it relates particularly to headcount? right now and what's your strategy in this environment for M&A uh, where at the moment you appear to be better positioned than some of your rivals and peers? So we're continuing to be cautious with cost, but we are hiring. We have a number of open positions if anyone goes to our website. Uh, we have always been careful with how we do that. We don't over go overboard. Uh, we don't like layoffs uh, with what we do, so we are cautious. And then we bring them on and we have long-lived employees in terms of their uh, tenure at microchip. Uh, you had a second question, I'm sorry. M&A. M&A. So, you know, we have eschewed M&A since about four years ago, the large M&A. Um, over 10 years of time, we did that, we grew scale, we grew our product lines. And really the benefits of that are what we're seeing in the last two, three years is we're bringing the power of the portfolio into getting substantial portions of the customer's design, bring more complete solutions to them. We have done small M&A and we continue to do that. Uh, that's very targeted, pinpointed certain uh, uh, R&D, certain markets, uh, you know, usually small uh, teams, uh, 15, 20 people kind of teams. And we will keep doing that. And there's probably going to be more opportunity in the next year as the environment for funding for the smaller companies gets harder. Yeah. We could find better opportunities for M&A there. Uh, definitely getting the targets are getting cheaper for sure. Ganesh Murthy, CEO of Microchip with that stock up more than 5%. Thanks for being with us. Great. Thank you so much. Well, watch shares of Carvana. They're going in the other direction. Uh, they continue to be under pressure. And again, this morning after earnings down more than 20%, now down 95% for the year. This is a classic COVID mountain stock. Increased car prices, high interest rates, taking a toll on demand. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
Warner Brothers Discovery, the latest media company to miss estimates this quarter. Our Julia Borston joins us this morning with the breakdown and some pretty interesting numbers in there, JB. Yeah, I mean, look at that stock off over 11% right now on disappointing revenue that was reported yesterday. Also lower average revenue per user from that crucial direct-to-consumer division. Now, the company warned that advertising headwinds, not only did they weigh heavily on this quarter's results, but also warning that they are the greatest variable impacting financial performance next year. But as the company increased its guide of how much they'll be able to achieve in synergies from $3 billion to $3.5 billion, CEO David Zazov saying that they are focusing on profits, saying, quote, I believe that the grand experiment of chasing subscribers at any cost is over. Moffat Nathanson with the market perform saying the company's need to reduce leverage and relaunch its D2C bundle is a lot to juggle, asking, quote, so will Warner Brothers Discovery be able to pull it off? Answering, the reality is that we don't fully know yet, and the company essentially admitted as much as well. Needham with a hold rating, writing what we like best about Warner Brothers Discovery's D2C strategy, i.e. Discovery Plus, is that it is focused on maximizing revenues per content hour. Higher return on investment on content should enable higher spending on new content, and that should drive higher subscription additions. The company also announced that it is moving up the launch of its combined streaming bundle from mid-year 2023 to the spring. John? Julia, thanks. And more earnings coming Monday. Lyft, Palantir, Take-Two, and Activision. We're going to tell you what to expect next. Stay with us. Got another set of key earnings coming up Monday, more tech earnings. On Monday, we will get results from Lyft, Palantir, Activision Blizzard, Take-Two Interactive. Also, SoftBank, a company that I watch very closely, Carl. It will be interesting to see how their equity investments are going, especially in light of a report this morning that Tiger Global is pulling back on their Chinese investments. Of course, SoftBank has been a prolific investor in Chinese companies um, over the last few years. We'll listen to hear if Masa-san has any change in tune. Yeah, or if we can get uh, President Xi to expand on his comments this morning that China is going to reopen. John, we're going to get more Fed speak, of course, CPI on deck. That's going to be big. As will. I mean, you got two gaming names. And from an investor standpoint, maybe you're not as concerned. Activision Blizzard, uh, you know, Microsoft's success in getting it probably has more to do uh, with your interests than whatever the company does in the quarter. But it is Q4 coming up. The gaming industry overall is very consumer weighted, so we'll see if expectations have been set in the right place. Meanwhile, as we close out the week, check out the biggest laggards on the NASDAQ 100. Atlassian, as we mentioned, down 36% after tough results there. More market action after the break. Don't go away. One more thing today, getting some headlines out of the Barron Investment Conference in New York City this morning, where Elon Musk was talking Twitter and Tesla on stage with Ron Barron. Our Becky Quick was in the room and joins us with some highlights. Hey, Beck, fill us in. Hey, Carl, I have to tell you, um, he was pretty impressive speaking. And the one thing I took away from this is he should speak publicly more often and tweet less often because he actually does have a plan for what he wants to do with Twitter. And it seems like he's thought an awful lot about it. Now, he addressed very head on uh, some of the big pressures that they're facing right now with Twitter. He said that even before this company was uh, the acquisition came about, this company was facing some serious problems. We know that ad spending online has gone down everywhere. Twitter is very reliant on big companies and less so on direct from 
from consumer or to consumer messages. And that's an area that's taken a pretty significant hit. He said if you look beyond that, um, they've tried pretty hard since he took over just in the last week or so to make sure that it's clear that the content moderation policy has not changed. He said it's not okay to engage in hateful conduct on Twitter. He said if it's a place full of anti-Semitism and racism, who's going to want to stick around anyway? He said there were some temporary targeted attacks that came, but those have been taken down very quickly. So he said that this is an issue that they are dealing with, but he also said that this is a major concern right now. He said they are seeing a slowdown in ads from big companies. He said that this was because of activist groups that are kind of pressuring big companies right now not to advertise since his takeover. He said um, if they're trying to suppress free speech, that doesn't seem right, of course. Free speech doesn't mean paid for or paid that the protected speech will be paid for and that's going to be the issue they run into but he does have some serious plans about what to do with this he spoke about the eight dollar a month fee for verified twitter account and it actually made sense to me you know there's been so much talk about this but he was able to lay it out in a way that does make sense he said the point here is to make sure that crime does not pay he said to create a bot right now it only costs about a penny if it costs $8 to get content that's going to be amplified that rises to the top, then it's going to make um, anything coming from trolls and from bots much more expensive. Right now you can do uh, 8,000 accounts for less than $8. If you're looking at being making 800,000 or 100,000 bots, it would cost you $800,000 a month and then the, it no longer makes sense from the metrics of it, from any of the things that they can do with that. And that does actually make sense to me. He pointed out that on Google search, uh, they pull the things that they think are most likely to make sense. If you have verified content coming from real people, not trolls, that will be the stuff that rises to the top. Now, he says, I know how to build a way better PayPal, because remember, he was a co-founder of PayPal. He said they're going to execute on a plan he basically wrote t 22 years ago, back in 2000, and then make some improvements on that. But I have to tell you, Carl, when you listen to him in person, he makes a lot of sense. And he was uh, very thoughtful today in his comments here. Yep, I remember him at Code uh, not too long ago, uh, and clearly uh, the, back, the backdrop has changed, and the macro, of course, uh, but we're going to see how hard this is to do. It's a lot different than uh, sending a rocket and returning it safely. Beck, thank you for that. Uh, Becky, quick. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.